Hello, ladies and gents and everyone in between. This is Rebuttal, as you know, where we break down cases, calamity, and chaos in the legal field. My name is Reb Maisel. I am once again your host. And two days ago, it was my birthday. It was my birthday. I turned 29 years old on November 26th um, because that's when real real ones are born. I love November for that reason. It is my birthday month. I'm a Sagittarius, et cetera, et cetera. Amazing, perfect, gorgeous. I don't feel 29. I feel 19 and a half. But then at the same time, I feel 72 because every millisecond of my 20s, I have been intimately familiar with, you know, like people can look back, look back at their 20s and say, oh, you know, I, I should have done this or I should have done that or get nostalgic in a sad way. I did so fucking much in my 20s. Like, let's just like break this down for a minute. Okay. For a hot fucking sec. I was 20 years old. Okay. I turned 20 when I was what? A soft sophomore? Sophomore. Yeah. Sophomore in college. Okay. Crop tops, cheap vodka, plastic candles, wine bags, shotgunning beers on a deck, beer die, beer pong, bus, club, another club, barely get through school, undeclared major in college. Didn't even know what I was doing. Did I think I was going to law school? No, I did not. Okay. My W, my win, okay. My win was getting into the college that I went to because I love it. UC Santa Barbara, go Gauchos. Hell yeah. It's a fantastic fucking school. It's a hard school to get into. And I was with a bunch, I was living on the beach. I was living on the fucking beach at 20 years old. Amazing, perfect gorge. Okay. And I was at a fake ID, allegedly, wink, wink. Um, and I was just having a ball. Okay. Having an absolute ball. I was waiting tables. I was just literally the only thing I had that, that really I had in my future that I knew I was going to do is study abroad, which I did. Okay. I did. I did. I studied abroad in Geneva, Switzerland. Okay. So mind you, right. This is what I, I turned 21, right? 21. I was dating a surfer. Yay. Like shout out to Jake. <laughs> he listens to my podcasts. Um, that's actually confirmed. He's actually cool. He's a chiller. Um, he's cool beans. Uh, he, he's not, he, he, <laughs> he, yeah, he listens to my podcast. Um, he does need to get caught up, but yeah. All right. So he knew 21 year old Amber, a little rambunctious, little spitfire gal. If you asked him, Oh, like, is she different? He'd be like, she's pretty much the fucking same. Um, pretty much the fucking same just more, less angry, actually. <laughs> less angry. I'm less angry, but I'm nevertheless still silly funny. <laughs> he thinks I'm funnier, actually. I think he thinks I'm funnier. I'm more funny than I was when I was 21. Um, but the reason for that is because I went to law school and it was either stick pins in my eyes or develop a sense of humor. So I did the latter. Um, and now here we are at 9 p.m. on a weekday in front of a hot light and a camera and a microphone to tell some jokes and talk some case. Talk some case law. After I turned 21, after I turned 21, I studied abroad, um, living in Geneva, Switzerland, amazing, traveled the world, right? City after city, bus club, another club. I, I went everywhere that I wanted to go. I went to Poland, which I really had wanted to do. Um, visited Krakow because that's near where my I'm very Polish, where my on my dad's side, where his family and my family is is from. Um, so so cool. Um, and saw you know went to Auschwitz and Birkenau, and yes, like it, no one wants to describe that experience as amazing. Like obviously it was horrifying, but 
just, you know, crossed so many things off of my fucking bucket list in terms of things that I wanted to be moved by and things that I felt were so crucial and critical and essential to the human experience. Um, I'm just, yeah, that was awesome. Came back home, uh, a senior year of college, Ocean Side, Ocean Sizzy was like, what am I going to do with my life? Maybe I'll say for the LSAT, that ass. So I put the LSAT, uh, fucking got into law school, went to law school, became an attorney, passed the bar, took the bar, passed the bar, did the whole, t- this whole TikTok shit, holy fuck, like I've been practicing, like things have been moving at the speed of light. I've done so many things. I've done so much shit. And um, I'm so proud. So here we go. Here's to my 20s. Yay. Woo. We have one more year left. I'm so excited for what it holds. Where are we going to be in a year? I don't know. If you would have told me a year ago that I would have been sitting in front of you right now doing this, I would not have believed you. But here I am. Um, Yay. I just can't wait to be 30. I can't wait to just start my 30s. New era. New era. Rebrand. Rebrand. Rep for the rebrand. You know. Okay. Thank you guys, by the way, for reviewing the podcast rebuttal on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube commenting, adding to your Instagram story, DMing me, like tweeting about it to people, like posting on random threads saying, oh my God, Rebuttal did an episode on this. Like you have to listen and tagging me. I just, it just makes me just so happy. Not because it's just like, oh, like a plug, like, ah, yay. But you know, um, I do this because I, I love yelling into a void. Yes, of course. But I don't like yelling into a void that isn't filled with people that I enjoy. And also, I don't like yelling into a void of my own making that the people forced to be in the void are not happy with. (laughs) So I, you know, appreciate when you guys tell me how much you like it and enjoy it. Um, It gets me going. It really butters my nuggets. (laughs) It really oils my nuggets to hear your feedback and just like chat. Like I just like, I have so many podcast episodes that I've listened to over the years from other podcasts. Like, you know, I I can barely even like remember the title, but I just like the the information that I learned is just ingrained, burned, seared into my brain, into my noggin um, for me to break out at parties during a weird, awkward pause. And I am only hoping if I do nothing with this podcast, if this podcast does absolutely nothing in its tenure, I am just hoping that it, it, it is that for you in some way, shape, or form, right? You could say, you could talk all about um, a prison escape where these motherfuckers, right, escaped for a single day and then killed one of themselves, um, one of their homies and one of their crew. You can talk about the guy who burned 80,000 bodies. You can talk about the body behind a wall. There's a lot of body-centric material here i think today's is not today's is not oh my god what a segue woo clap snaps snaps for the host thank you i'm just gonna fucking start how about that how about that like i i love to do like an intro moment but like at this point like i'm exhausted like holy fuck like it's almost the holidays it was just my birthday like i am 29 years young november 26 1994 Mark your calendars. That's when greatness began. Um, my parents' best collab, I think. And I am one of three other children. But I may be biased, but like, look at the material. Um, <laughs> love you to my brother and my sister. 
they who are not listening, <laughs> who are at their jobs, <laughs> who have shit to do. Um, I am just going to get right into this because what in the actual fuck? What in the actual fuck, you guys? What in the fuck? A shoe, a wallet, a skid mark, and a battered bicycle. That was all that Air Force Sergeant Doug Pugh left behind on May 12, 1987, the day he vanished while taking a pre-dawn bike ride near his home in Albuquerque, New Mexico. The events of May 12, 1987 were a tragedy, it seemed, at the time that snuffed out a man full of promise at the young age of 27, who at the time had a wife and two young children. As was his habit, Doug Pugh set out early that day on his racing bike. A fitness fanatic, he was training for a triathlon and planned to ride 27 miles along the Rio Grande. When he failed to show up to teach a class later that morning, his wife and friends became alarmed. Retracing his bike route, they found the shoe and skid mark on a bridge over the river. Later, they discovered his bike and wallet near a dumpster nine miles away. Sergeant Bill Burton led the painstaking hunt for Pew's body, an effort that involved scores of airmen, as well as detectives from the nearby sheriff's department. After the Air Force officially called off the search, Burton and others pressed on after work hours, renting bloodhounds to search for clues and swimming an eight-mile stretch of the river each day. Quote, we even used avalanche probes to poke the sand to see if he might have been stuck under there, Burton recalled. We tried everything. For 60 days, anguished airmen searched for their buddy. Unwilling to believe the star of their elite Air Force pararescue team could be gone. Friends posted flyers bearing his picture while relatives hired a private detective and offered a $5,000 reward. Finally, everyone gave up. The military declared Doug Pugh dead, and those who had loved him went on with their lives. No one knew for sure what had happened to Doug Pugh. Had there been an accident? Had he been the victim of foul play? A private detective hired by Doug Pugh's family concluded that he had been hit by a car and landed in the river. However, one of Doug Pugh's close friends in the Air Force was convinced he would, quote, find Doug's body in the desert someday, buried in a shallow grave. Unsolved Mysteries, the television program, ran a segment on his case in the 90s. Ultimately, the military declared Doug Pugh officially dead so that his wife could collect survivor's benefits. Time passed, but nobody forgot the airman who disappeared. Quote, We crossed that bridge twice to get to the area where we do our jumps, Bill Burton said. There hasn't been one day in five years that I haven't looked down at that river and wondered what became of my friend Doug. Unbeknownst to the United States Air Force, to Doug Pugh's close friends, his fellow airmen, his family, his wife, Susie, and their two children, they would find out what happened to Doug, but not the way they think. Five years after Doug Pugh went missing in the middle of Albuquerque, New Mexico, he would turn up in San Diego, California, when he was arrested by Air Force investigators on his doorstep of a beautiful white picket fence home in June of 1992. 
the Air Force charged Doug with desertion, along with a laundry list of other dishonorable type crimes. What happened? At this time in 1992, Doug's wife Susie had relocated to Washington State with the couple's two sons and was going to remarry the next month. However, Pew's arrest spoiled her plans. State law forbids the union, her new marriage, now that her first husband had turned up. Oh yeah, that's what we like to call bigamy. And Doug Pugh was charged with it. Why, you may ask? Oh, because where was Doug Pugh this entire time? Getting remarried under an alias, having two more children, impregnating a neighbor, robbing a bank in Texas. Shall I go on? Oh, I will. This is the legend, the era, the moment, the apocalypse of James Douglas Pugh, who went by Doug in his previous life. It tells the story of a man who deserted the United States Air Force because he apparently hit his kids one night, felt so guilty, and his two options in his head were either slit my wrists and have my kids find me in the bathtub, he literally said that, or um, get the hell out of Dodge and go go track down that hot piece of ass in San Diego that I was talking to a while back. Mm-hmm. I love men. Let's get into it. Because a body was never found, Pew's first wife, Susie, and his family had held out hope that he was still alive. They waited a year before going ahead with a memorial service in Garrettsville, Ohio, Pew's hometown, after he disappeared. Quote, we tried hard to accept the fact that he must be dead, said Mary Ann Pugh, Doug's mother, who lives in Garrettsville. Several months before the phony fucking accident that Pugh staged, Pugh had traveled to San Diego to attend a four-week training course at the Navy SEAL base in Coronado. Friends said it was during this visit that he met Monica, his second wife. She had just returned from a trip to Australia and was summoned to a bar in Bonita by a sister who wanted her to meet an Australian named Doug. According to a source, Monica quickly realized that Pew was not Australian and the two had a good laugh over his attempt to fool her. Red flag number one. Friends of the couple said Pew claimed to be a Navy SEAL and told Monica he would be coming back in a few months. After his disappearance in New Mexico, he did. Less than three months after abandoning Susie and two young sons in New Mexico, Pew asked Monica to marry him. Less than three months. Monica, my girl. They were married at St. Rose of Lima Catholic Church in Chula Vista on September 26th, 1987. For five years... Doug Pugh lived a life of deception. His mother, his sister, his wife, and his two young sons thought he was dead. So did the U.S. government. Within months of Doug Pugh's arrival to San Diego, the former member of an elite Air Force parachute rescue unit married the daughter of a well-to-do doctor in Chula Vista, putting behind him the family he had left in New Mexico. This well-to-do woman, okay, daughter, whatnot, said later in her testimony in court that, yes, they had a fling, okay, years back, okay, a fling, a ring, um, but no, she was not expecting him to show up one day on her doorstep, okay, in, in 1987, 
with three quarters in his pocket and a love confession. He was like, I'm the love of your life. And she said, I'm game. So that was his plan. And, and it worked out somehow, some way. Somehow, some way. We find a way. How could they get married? Well, because he was living under a fake name. There, he assumed the name of a 10-year-old boy who had been killed years earlier in a bicycle accident. But for all intents and purposes, he was now married to two people under the law, which is not allowed. That's what we call bigamy. You can't be a bigamist, okay? It's not a thing. Armed with a new identity and financial backing from his new father-in-law, Pew and his second wife, a law school graduate, girly, girly kins, uh, free my girl, free my sis, God damn it. They started a successful business by renovating houses in San Diego's poorest neighborhoods and selling them, acquaintances said. So they're gentrifying. Okay, fucking San Diego. In less than three years, Pew and his wife were worth nearly a million dollars, owning a 4,000 square foot cabin in Idlewild and a $500,000 house overlooking a San Diego canyon. Quote, he was the kind of guy who could look you in the eye, lie to you, and make you believe everything he said, said a male friend. See, I fucking hate people, okay, just as an aside. Anybody ever, like, caught up, okay, in, like, the ring and, like, the crew and the posse and the entourage of someone who ends up being, like, a huge pathological lying criminal, okay, always says this type of shit in the interviews, right? They're like, yeah, I was friends with him, but, like, I knew he was a liar, like, he just, like, lied all the time. Like, he just, like, gave people to believe whatever he said. Like, you didn't fucking know he was a fucking liar. Like, if I ever find out that any of my closest friends ends up being, like, a crazy criminal to the point where I'm getting interviewed for a Netflix doc, you better believe I'm going to be like, I had no, no, they were great. Like, no fucking clue. Not a clue in the world. Like, slay. Like, you know what I mean? Like, damn. Like, she really pulled that shit off. Like, I'm going to break out a fucking timeline and shit. You know what I mean? Be like, wait, when when did she commit that? robbery. Oh my God. Wait, we were in Vegas the next day. No fucking way. Like, uh, can anyone be shocked, please? Like, can we just get some like childlike wonder a little bit more when it comes to people who are connected to villains, please? Okay. God, because be fucking serious. Be serious. I knew he was lying. No, he fucking didn't. The broad outlines of Pew's life on the run had been pieced together through interviews with friends and acquaintances in San Diego, public records, law enforcement sources, and members of his family. The following account is based on those sources. When the economy began to worsen, okay, about three years in to Pew's new second beautiful, gorgeous, fun life, it started to fall apart a little bit. He and his second wife's financial security quickly crumbled, as did the deception that insulated Pew. Mind you, remember, keep in your noggin, he has two babies two children by this woman, okay, all under the age of five, obviously, in addition to his two kids back home, okay, with his wife who's widowed by his ass, has never, ever reached out to them, never gave a shit, never gave a fuck, okay? And I know it's not that shocking because it's like, yeah, we deal with socios, you know what I mean? Some sociopaths, like fork found in kitchen, but God damn, you know, like God fucking damn. God fucking damn. The audacious, the audash, the audash. Okay, I'm not saying yes, all men, like, but it is always a man, isn't it? 
Holy fuck. His second wife learned around this time that he had had an affair with the next door neighbor and that she was pregnant by him. Because, of course, when your life is falling apart and the economy crashes, fuck the girl next door. Write that down. She also inadvertently discovered his secret bank accounts and private mailbox. Of course she fucking did, okay? She's a law, she's a law student, okay? Well, look, right? The beginning of her journey with this guy, right? Being, you know, supposed to be like a sharp law student, law school graduate, lawyer type beat. Start was not great, right? It's not great. She didn't do amazing. She did not pass with flying colors in terms of detecting the bullshit, but she did recover. Okay. She recovered. She went up FBI and she found his bank accounts in his mailbox. Um, honestly, because right. She has a fire under her ass. Like, Oh, I caught you cheating and you made, you know, you have a baby mama. You have another baby mama outside of our marriage. I'm about to literally dust your ass harder than really anyone ever could. Um, so this is her redemption arc truly because the only fucking reason why this episode is exists currently right now. And the only reason why this man, um, did indeed serve some time behind busies behind bars is because he fucked the neighbor. Honestly, rebuttal. Okay. My early rebuttal before the end of this podcast is quite literally, Hey, if you want to be a deceptive pathological villain, okay. Lying your ass off, living double lives. Do not and I repeat, do not fuck over your girl, okay? Your girls, your wife, your girlfriend, keep her happy. Keep it cute, okay? Don't cheat. Mm-mm. Don't have a new baby mother. Do not do that. None of that business. Because when she finds out about that shit and you disrespect her, okay, and shit goes down, you could be the grimiest piece of shit that entire fucking relationship, okay? to her, about her, for her, to your kids, et cetera. The moment that she's like, oh, you're fucking around with someone else, it, it the castle's going to be crumbling down. Okay, Humpty Dumpty, it's over. There is no wrath like a woman scorned. Ate that shit. Don't fuck over your girl, okay? If you want to be a bank robber, if you want to be a serial killer, if you want to be a forger, if you want to be an embezzler, keep your wife happy. Also, imagine this, okay? Imagine this. You have a second life that you created by killing yourself in New Mexico and swindling not just, oh, you know, like your family, your friends, like maybe like the county coroner's office, the United States military, the Air Force, the U.S.S. Air Force that you are absolutely clock, should be clocking in for, right? Do not, do not get into a fucking petty, traitor war with the u.s military like that shit is wild to me he fucked around like he fucked around and he got away with it his ass got away with it right he got away well enough well fucking enough to to have them be like yeah he's dead that but damn build a memorial his friends are sobbing like have like meetups and cry about him and shit and he's over here in san diego with his toesies in the sand checking out the neighbor girl like that is wild to me that double life is wild to me okay but like now he has a triple life. Okay. A triply dipply what life. Okay. You can't, you can't stack them that much, you know, like you have a second wife. Okay. Who think who she thinks she's the first. She's not. You have a second wife and two, two other babies. Okay. You copied and pasted, right? Job, money, millies. You can't 
on top of that, okay, also have a third life where you're fucking the neighbor. Like, pick your point. You're getting greedy. Like, you're getting a little greedy. Like, writing was on the fucking wall. That's just my opinion. Um, so if you are, if you do deal in double lives, if you are currently living a double life, um, you know, let me know how that second round is working out for you. Um, if you are absolutely stacking like dominoes, uh, you know, maybe you're on your fourth, you know, life moment. Maybe you're having two affairs, right? You're having an affair with the mistress that you're having an affair with your wife. You know what I mean? Um, let like let me know how you do it. Like hop on the show. Um, I love I love learning about entrepreneurs getting tips on how to build my business. Kudos. After our girl, our second wife girl, okay, did her research, okay, find out found out about the neighbor and mailbox and the secret bank accounts, she confronts him. Okay, she confronts his ass, all right? And she's like, "What in the actual fuck?" Okay? In 19 19- 91. All right. May of 1991. This is when she's like, hi, what the fuck? This has been four years after he killed himself in the desert. And after a series of arguments with her husband, because of course he can't just be like, you're so right. I'll keep it quiet. Nope. Pew's second wife found out his real identity. Oh yes. Through cursory detective work, after some arguments where he was probably a huge fucking asshole, she was like, okay, bet. Okay. Mind you, this is 1992, 91. This is 1991. She couldn't do a quick Google. Like it's not that I know now contextually we're thinking, oh, okay. Like, yeah, I mean like everyone's, everyone's the FBI. No, this bitch, this bitch said bet. This bitch said bet. Okay. Figures out after he was a douche canoe. Yeah. He is not who he says he is. So I think she's like redeemed herself at this point. You know what I mean? For like her really bad, horrible judge character in the beginning. We love a law school girly. We love a lawyer win. We love a W. Female. Women in law. Through cursory detective work, she tracked down Pew's sister who lives in the Bay Area and told her the brother she had given up for dead was alive. Guess, guess what happened next? Oh yeah. The women a.k.a. the second wife and Doug Pugh's sister, told the Air Force in 1991. You have, at this point, two children with the first wife that you ignored, didn't, gave up, okay? Two children with the second wife, okay? And then a third with this neighbor, all right? You are not shooting blanks, that's for sure. You have five children with three baby mamas. It's giving Tristan Thompson. Cool it. Nick Cannon. Okay. Goddamn. Yeah, my ex was crazy. Really? What'd she do? Um, yeah, so she like caught me um like fucking the neighbor girl and found out that the neighbor was pregnant. So she basically researched and found out that I have private mailbox and and separate bank accounts. Um, and then she did some more research in the 90s. So it was literally like her like opening books and like asking around and shit. Um Figured out that uh, I am living a double life, that I actually am not the person I said I am, that I faked my own death. I found my sister, flew up to the Bay Area to hang out with her and tell her that I was alive and then told the Air Force that I had deserted. She's crazy. Once the truth came out, Monica was amazed at the similarities between herself and Susie, Doug's first wife. Both came from large Catholic families. In both cases, Pew converted to Catholicism in order to marry. He's literally just trying this again, this life, like copy-paste. 
creepy, scary, gross. Bruce Lambert, a close friend of the couple, said Pew seldom talked about himself. According to Lambert, Pew told friends he used to live in Switzerland, where he worked with a mountain rescue team. On rare occasions when Pew was talkative with his new friends, he impressed them with stories about daring rescues in Iceland and the Swiss Alps and harrowing missions for Interpol, the international police organization. There was some truth to some of these stories, however. Among his many rescues while on the Air Force team was the plucking of a hiker from a glacier crevice in Ireland, Iceland. Wow. My bad. A friend of Monica's who attended the wedding said several guests wondered why his family was not in attendance. Pew had an answer to the questions about his family. He said he was an orphan. Borrowing money from her father, Monica and Pew had launched their renovation business, which was a success, and Monica gave birth to two sons. Using her new information, Monica found Pew's sister in the Bay Area. His sister did not believe that his brother was still alive. So Monica pulled out her wedding pictures. The evidence was irrefutable. After an investigation, of course, right? They're going to look into it. The U.S. Air Force said, damn, second wife did better than we did at finding this motherfucker. And on June 10th, 1992, Pew, who is now 32, found himself face to face with the past. Five years of falsehoods came to a head when Air Force officials arrested him in San Diego and charged him with desertion, larceny, and bigamy. Bigamy, as I think I stated in the beginning, is when you can't marry twice if you're already married and didn't end it. You know, like, why do people get divorced? Because bigamy is a crime. Well, I don't really know if it's like like a crime everywhere in the U.S. necessarily. Um, I know that, um, you know, some polygamists did flee some states to try to avoid the bigamy the bigamist charge. Um, but it's not, it's not, the charge is not called polygamy. I know that's what you're thinking of in your head. It's literally being called like a bigamist. Like you can be a bigamist. It's an ist still. Um, yeah, it's basically where like you can't have two marriage licenses that are, that show that you're married at the same time. One or the other, pick your poison. Okay. So even though he was declared dead, right. Which like gave his wife a pass, his first wife a pass. Okay. Remember to get remarried. Yay. Amazing. Um, yeah. The moment that they found out he was alive, oh, that certificate gets shot out from under her like a fucking bad rug. And now she can, she quite literally cannot legally cannot get married to her new husband. Okay. To remarry in Washington until she gets a divorce. Like, it's kind of fucking some bitches up. You know what I mean? It's kind of crazy. Desertion, larceny, and bigamy. Okay. In the beginning, mind you, in the beginning, he did more. Oh, just you wait. Just you fucking wait. Our boy Doug got into it. After Pew was declared legally dead, Susie Pew received close to $500,000 in life insurance and other benefits for her and her children. It is these benefits that form the basis for for the larceny charges against Pew. Pew's friends in San Diego said they were not surprised that he was able to persuade the military and a private investigator that he was dead. Friends described him as a highly intelligent, competent, and manipulative man. Quote, remember, Doug was an overachiever all of his life, said a source close to Pew. He was a good student and star athlete. He did all of this in order to gain recognition from his father, but he never got as much as a nod. Daddy Issues When Pew was in high school, he once displayed frustration over the lack of recognition from his father by dumping his wrestling track and football trophies in a trash can. 
Pugh's mother, Marianne Pugh, says her son was subjected to abuse as a youth, though she could decline to elaborate. Marianne Pugh said Doug was 12 when she divorced her husband, and she has not had any contact with her former husband in 20 years. Apple, meet tree. Doug's father was very demeaning and degrading. Doug has three sisters who were also affected. The trauma from his childhood was buried a long time. She described her son as a generous, albeit confused person. No shit. She said, quote, when he gets through this, he will be a better person. This experience is going to solve a lot of problems that he didn't understand to begin with. Now, to give you an idea of this guy, of this person, right? You would probably think of a deserter as, you know, the deadbeat, the guy who everyone didn't fucking like, okay? The one that they were like, oh, you know, we knew he was going to do it or, oh, he wasn't that good at this job or whatever. Several former military colleagues would testify at the court-martial hearing that Pew's exploits had made him a living legend in the Air Force without him deserting prior to him dying and then doing this whole shit, okay? Him not deserting and being drama-free, he would still have gone down as a living legend. Like, oh my God, do fucking less. Like, no one to stop. Testimony included accounts of bravery by Pew spiced up with stories of intrigue, deception, and romance because, of course, he was a ladies' man. Pew's former teammates at the prestigious pararescue school housed at Kirtland Air Force Base in Albuquerque are the gutsy people who pluck victims from sinking ships, burning airplanes, and other dangerous spots. Trust is what binds them. And the news of Pew's reemergence rumbled in and crushed the spirits of many of these airmen like a runaway train. The mood is devastation, complete devastation, said Sergeant Bill Burton, a close friend of the old Doug Pugh, who led the search for Doug's body. This job is dangerous and everything you do depends on your buddy, your friend. To have a brother pull something like this guy pulled, it just floors you. We just want to know why. James Doug Pugh was one of those kids who seemed to excel at everything. He had both the 3.7 grade point average needed to win honors and impress parents and the talent to letter in wrestling and make the track and football teams. As the folks at James A. Garfield High School in Garrettsville, Ohio remember it, there were few students whose prospects seemed brighter. He was just a great young man, polite, outgoing, respectful of adults. Andrea Winchell, a secretary at the high school for 15 years, recalled in an interview, everybody liked him. The youngest of four children, Pugh graduated from Garfield High in 1978 and landed a job as a diesel mechanic in Galveston, Texas. That didn't interest him for long, however, and after an Air Force recruiter showed him a film on the risky adventures of the pararescuer, he enlisted in 1979. The grueling life suited him and his brawny 6'3", 195-pound frame perfectly. After attending pararescue school, Pugh was sent to Iceland. There, his many rescues included plucking a hiker from a glacier crevice and saving two British pilots whose plane had crashed during a blizzard. From Iceland, he moved to Albuquerque in 1986 with his wife Susie, a one-time professional figure skater, and two young sons, Brian and Timothy. Pugh quickly climbed the ranks there, becoming an instructor in the pararescue school. Quote, he was outstanding, the absolute best, said Sergeant Michael Vogel, who was chief of training at the school at the time of Pugh's disappearance. 
He just had what it took to do this extremely demanding job and he was devoted to it. His future was extremely bright. Then came the events of May 12th, 1987. Of course, as we know, shit hit the fan. He bounced. He bounced, he bounced. He bounced. And somehow pulled it off. Why is it that the Air Force could arrest him, right? Like it wasn't the cops, it wasn't the Poe. Okay, it wasn't like San Diego authorities, California authorities, federal authorities. No, it was Air Force. The Air Force arrested him. Okay, court-martialed his ass. What does court-martial mean? Like, how can can I be court-martialed? Can you be court-martialed? How, okay, are you court-martialed? A and B, do military servicemen like get, you know, the same kind of due process considerations that we do? Um, where are they tried when shit goes down, when they do bad things, okay? Even if they're doing bad things to society, right? Like, in this case, um, bigamy, like, what the fuck, right? Um, yeah, the military, okay, has their own court system. Entirely own laws, tribunal, the whole shebang. Uh, yeah, and they can pretty much do whatever the fuck they want. Okay, not actually, but, like, it's getting there. Each armed force, including the Air Force, has court-martial jurisdiction over all persons subject to the Uniform Code of Military Justice. The exercise of jurisdiction by one armed force over personnel of another armed force must be in accordance with regulations prescribed by the president. Military trial and appellate courts, like all federal courts, are courts of limited jurisdiction, and they possess only that power authorized by the Constitution and statute. Congress's power to subject a person to trial by court-martial depends upon whether military jurisdiction exists over both the person and the act. A person may be tried for an offense by a court-martial where the person is a person subject to the Uniform Code of Military Justice, and the offense is one constitutionally punishable under military law. So, like, it's in your big book, okay, your big military code book. Military jurisdiction over the person continues as long as military status exists. That is where our boy Dougie Doug came in because guess whom was never discharged? Dougie Doug. Generally, an individual discharged and returned to civilian life is not subject to the jurisdiction of a court-martial convened under the Uniform Code of Military Justice. Interestingly, okay, the Uniform Code of Military Justice applies in all places anywhere around the world, Antarctica, Timbuktu, Madagascar. And convening a court-martial in a foreign country constitutes an exercise of extraterritorial jurisdiction by the U.S. Because we are big brother, but also annoying little brother who can't just keep our business within borders. Yeah, so it can happen anywhere, okay? Obviously, for reasons uh, not needed to be explained, all right? You're stationed everywhere. The military justice system is unique. At the center of this system is not a judge or even an attorney, but rather a military commander. The commander has the authority to charge service members with offenses, refer these cases to courts martial, select the panel member who will hear the case, and to then review the findings and sentences adjudged by the court martial. Recently, though, reformers have argued that commanders have failed the system highlighting the recent increase in military sexual assaults and the rash of servicemen or misconduct during deployment, these reformers argue that commanders should be removed from the military justice system entirely. Mind you, right? 
the idea that sexual assaults um, have have recently increased, military sexual assaults specifically, is a bit of a red herring. It's a bit of a mis a, a mischaracterization of what's actually happening, right? Um, obviously, in recent years, um, women have been uh, joining forces, joining the armed forces uh, much more. Uh, why, you may ask? Oh, probably because they used to not be fucking allowed to or used to just be sat at like, you know, the home base clerical positions or were not, you know, actually part of the active, you know, boots on the ground force. Um, with more women have come obviously more sexual assaults because where women exist, sexual assaults fucking exist. Where women and men exist together in tandem, sexual assaults exist. Um, and also more sexual assaults are being reported um, with the rise of the internet, social media, and, you know, viral viral fucking news, right? Like you being able to get your story out in front of people without having to have a new station agree. Um, that has been pivotal to a lot of women stepping forward, either from past or present, um, serving active service members who who have told their story and spoken about it. So, I mean, in my, and not even just a belief, but but with an analytical mind, okay, let's say, who understands statistics and understands proportions, um, and understands how how those can change based on the social climate and access to resources and help. Um, yeah, it's not that all of a sudden there is a recent spike in sexual assaults. The sexual assaults have been happening. It's a recent spike of reports of sexual assaults and then nothing coming of it. Thanks so much for my fucking TED Talk. How do military servicemen actually answer for their crimes, for, for shit that goes down? Let me give you some scenarios. One, a Navy SEAL is investigated, charged, tried, convicted, and punished by the Navy for actions in combat. The president intercedes, granting clemency, triggering the firing of the Secretary of the Navy, and a national debate over both political acceptance of behavior that violates the military's own criminal code and implicates the laws of war, and political interference with the military's dispensation of, quote, justice. Number two, 10 months before a presidential election, a retired four-star general pens an op-ed in the New York Times accusing the incumbent president of being selfish, immoral, and a liar. Three months later, he reiterates in the Washington Post labeling the president nepotistic, vindictive, divisive, and ignorant. Upon re-election, the president orders the army to initiate court-martial proceedings bringing the retired senior citizen back to service for prosecution for violating the Uniform Code of Military Justice's prohibition on using, quote, contemptuous words against the commander-in-chief. Number three, an enlisted airman in debt to the electronics retailer Best Buy fortuitously receives a check as a gift from his cousin. The airman uses the bank account and routing number from the check to fraudulently generate more than two, two dozen electronic checks totaling $50,000 on their account through Best Buy's automated bill pay system. He is arrested, charged, pleads guilty as a, at a court-martial, is convicted and sentenced to only 14 months in prison for, among other offenses, larceny and forgery. Four, a non-commissioned officer is convicted at a court-martial on charges of child endangerment, sexual assault, and adultery for hosting a party at his off-post residence where he drinks heavily throughout the night, leaving his 13-month-old son in his crib. 
he is sentenced to 12 years of confinement and a dishonorable discharge. What do all of these cases have in common? Nothing, except for the fact that each of these very real defendants were subject to trial by court-martial under military rules of evidence, under military rules of procedure, in front of a military judge and military panel members, and prosecuted by a military lawyer for what are deemed military crimes. In order for any of that to happen, however, a non-lawyer officer, usually the defendant, the accused commander, charges the suspect and another commanding officer of much higher rank refers the case to a court-martial, essentially indicting the service member. If there had been a need for pretrial confinement, a commanding officer would have made that decision too. If the accused person's defense counsel desired for the government to pay for a specific non-military expert witness or consultant, the commanding officer who referred the case would have approved or denied that request. Granting immunity, approving plea deals, and even the final form of the charges themselves are all under the lawful authority of a non-lawyer commanding officer. Despite more than half a century of slowly reforming American military justice with much-needed procedural guarantees, not all has changed. Even with lawyers advising the chain of command at every step and reducing the direct and indirect influence of commanders on the investigation, prosecution, trial, and punishment of offenders, there remain two fundamental characteristics that make this criminal justice process unique among criminal jurisdictions within the United States and increasingly throughout the world. The executive authority role that commanders play and the range of conduct that such commanders may, in their discretion, punish directly or direct into the court-martial process. What is the logic that justifies these characteristics of this military justice system? The answer to that is actually far from obvious, and it turns out difficult for even the military justice's proponents, including the United States Supreme Court, to explain fully, consistently, and persuasively. So in essence, why in the Frick Frack Paddywhack do non-lawyer commanding officers who are often intimately associated with the accused person who probably have a stake in the game, who probably are biased toward or maybe even against them, why are they allowed such power, such authoritative power over what happens to an accused person, whether they are guilty or not? In one case, upon reviewing the sad facts and the numerous courts martial of the army prisoners accused of, quote, mutiny at San Francisco's military stockade in 1968, known as the Presidio 27, investigative journalist Robert Sherrill described the system as, quote, racked by the most arbitrary gusts of emotion and self-interest, largely because a commander is allowed to run his own outfit with all of the autonomy of a medieval fiefdom, which is just a really wordy way of saying uh, they run it like the fucking mob, right? Like get in with the boss, be homies with your with your employer, with the guy upstairs, with your commanding officer, um, and then and then commit your crimes and you probably will uh, will be fine. or or on the flip side, even if you do nothing wrong, you would totally be charged with shit that they're claiming uh, you did and just be fucked and literally have to serve time or be dishonorably, dishonorably discharged just because there's a hard ass. 
as a commanding officer. Like, that's a little wild, right? That's like a little bonkers. Courts martial are still very much instruments of command authority. And their ultimate purpose, claimed purpose, is to protect the military effectiveness of the armed forces, end quote, which means nothing. Those are words, right? Protect the military effectiveness, their effectiveness at being the military, word. What? But a more, I think, accurate quote from a recent case is, quote, military law is in many respects harsh law, which is frequently cast in very sweeping and vague terms. It emphasizes the iron hand of discipline more than it does the even scales of justice. So it would seem that firmness and determination, courage under fire, honesty, valor, loyalty, and controlled aggressiveness are the products of not behaving in the myriad ways deemed criminal by military law. So essentially, uh, if you keep with the code, the uniform code of military justice, you can be big and strong and fast and great and controlled and a just a pivotal sample military guy. But if you don't, you are subject to the mercy of the tribunals, of the court, courts martial. For example, in the UCMJ, it is a crime to, quote, feign illness, physical disablement, or intentionally inflict self-injury with an intent to avoid work, duty, or service. To quit his unit, organization, or place of duty with intent to avoid hazardous duty or to shirk important service. To be willfully or negligently derelict in the performance of one's duties. To act while in the hands of the enemy in a time of war in a manner contrary to law, custom, or regulation to the detriment of others held by the enemy as civilian or military prisoners to wrongfully, quote-unquote, wear one's uniform in insignia, badge, ribbon, device, or lapel button one has not earned or is not authorized to wear, to knowingly make a false official statement, and to dishonorably, quote-unquote, fail to pay a debt under circumstances in which the failure was to the prejudice of good order and discipline or was of a nature to bring discredit upon the armed forces." Those are all crimes. Those are crimes. If you do those things, you are a criminal in the eyes of the UCMJ, in the eyes of the courts martial. Wild, right? But not entirely unsurprising, obviously. A military code of justice is example setting. It establishes the minimum qualifications for being a, quote, good soldier or Marine, sailor, airman, etc. In other words, do your job. Do your job to the standard required and expected, even if it is dangerous or difficult. Be honest and candid about your qualifications and military experience, especially about that which is bestowed for exceptional martial merit and valor. Act in ways that fortify, not undermine the command's ability to effectively manage an orderly and usually self-controlled force. And do not bring shame or disrepute upon the armed services. I am not, as a host, as a lawyer, as a person, passing judgment on the efficacy of the courts martial system or the military justice system. I don't have any experience with it. I am telling you what many commentators and critics and proponents of that system have said and the ways in which they've described it. Uh, 
And obviously, there are many an attorney who um, is also a service member who obviously works in the courts martial system. Okay. They represent defendants there. They prosecute there. They do everything. Okay. Yes. A few good men, Tom Cruise. All right. Uh, Jags, if you will. And they have very much um, come out despite it being one of the crimes that I listed. Uh, They have come out to criticize uh, the way that the system is run or very much beg and plead for the legislature, for Congress to improve it um, because the inherent power of um, this system is is by statute. It is statutory. As the members of one independent private review committee reported in 2001, quote, in order to maintain a disciplinary system as well as a justice system, commanders must have a significant role in the prosecution of crime at courts martial. But this role must not be permitted to undermine the standard of due process to which service members are entitled. Recent events, however, suggest that such an unpacking is either happening already organically through the courts, through practice, through public commentary and political discourse, through legislation, or that, if not happening explicitly yet, is bound to force the conversation about the nature, purpose, and scope of military justice. It is Congress's function, responsibility, and interest to oversee this system. And so all criticisms of it uh, often fall on deaf ears, if you can fucking imagine. There are scores of cases that we could talk about where military servicemen were apparently not given the justice that they required, the due process that they were entitled to. Um, Obviously, as you can imagine as well, Court records in these courts martial hearings, appearances, et cetera, are are often kept under wraps. I wonder why. Yeah, a lot of these things happen um, that implicate or allegedly implicate top secret military information that uh, the public cannot cannot see. I have found, just as an attorney, just as an aside, right through the things I've learned uh, through law school and and beyond, anything operating under a veil of secrecy in the government is never good. (laughs) Yes, maybe good things come out of it, but often, often whatever you hear about it is probably fucking true when it comes to the bad shit. Just wanted to give you the foundation for courts martial, for what that process is, for why uh, our boy Doug, Dougie Douglas was, was pulled from his front porch next to um, his impregnated neighbor and his two kids, uh, why he was pulled by the Air Force and not by regular cops. He was charged with desertion, bigamy, and larceny, okay, for the 500 grand that his first wife got (laughs) and the bigamy for him remarrying, even though he couldn't, and uh, obviously for deserting. Uh, Bigamy, we get it, okay? You can't marry twice. We get it, we get it, we get it. Larceny, we get it, okay? He skedaddled knowing that the 500 Gs would go to his wife. It's a bit of a larceny moment, all right? Um, if you want to hear more about what larceny fucking is, go to my episode about um, how to get away with uh, robbery, burglary, burglary. Go to that one. Learn something. What is desertion, okay? What does it actually entail? Under, artic- under Article 85 of the Uniform Code of Military Justice it is illegal for a military member to leave his or her unit and remain away with the intention of doing so permanently. 
This also encompasses those who leave their unit in order to avoid specific duties. There is a difference between going AWOL and deserting. AWOL, A-W-O-L, means absent without leave. Yay, you now know what that means. Okay, amazing. The military uses the term AWOL absent without leave, to mean that you are not in the place you're supposed to be at a specific date and time. You are not there. After a set amount of time, usually around 30 days, the AWOL status, okay, kind of the temporary term for it, changes to military desertion. This is obviously a much more serious offense and can range from 15 minutes late to being put on the FBI most wanted list. The maximum punishment for desertion under military laws is life in prison or death if the desertion was executed to avoid the threat of war. Okay, as you can imagine, it's not that surprising, okay, that that like the punishment's gonna, gonna be crazy. Like it's the military, it's the US military. Um, but it's just nuts that um that's what you're risking. You know, like our homeboy Dougie Doug was living life large. Like he was literally the most popular Regina George girl in school. He was the best pararescuer they had. Uh, he was good with the ladies. He had two kids. He was living life. He was doing triathlons and like quite literally just like woke up one day and said, and, and like hit his kid and then said, I'm out. Like, okay, good luck. I mean, five years, five years. He made it five years, five years and five fucking ch- kids later. Jesus. How can a service member like Doug be charged with desertion? There are a variety of ways. First, the service member must be proven to have actually deserted his or her unit. Obviously, with Doug, check mark. Check that box. The prosecution must prove this beyond a reasonable doubt. There are four different types of desertion, each with its own set of elements. The first type of desertion is desertion with intent to remain away permanently, I'm going to throw a wild guess shot in the dark here that that's what Douglas was fucking charged with. The the prosecution must prove that one, the accused was gone from his or her unit, organization, or place of duty. Two, his or her absence was without authority. Three, he or she decided at the time the absence began or at some point while gone that he or she intended to stay away permanently and he or she remained absent through the date alleged. The other three types of desertion are desertion with intent to avoid hazardous duty or shirk important service, desertion before notice of acceptance of designation, and four, attempted desertion. So like, if you're going to do it, do it right. You know what I'm saying? Like, no, we don't do attempted in this house. Like, get it together. Designation is when you, okay, literally the like exact opposite of designation, right? Designation means like you're getting demoted, I think. I'm kind of making that up. And I did Google designation. It didn't really come up. Um, and I'm like exhausted and it's like 9 p.m. So I'm like, no, like figure it out. Okay, designation. There's a fun word to say though. Designation. Designation. Fun fact. The military is not concerned with determining why you left, but just proving that you did so. So like they don't really want to hear like your excuses, right? They don't really want to hear your whiny bitchiness. Okay, they literally do not give a flying fuck why you left. You could have left because like someone was like shooting at you. Like you could have literally just like backed up three paces behind your fucking post and that could technically be desertion. Okay. Like I'm laughing only because it's just nuts. Often the facts regarding your health and well-being may help to establish your defense, but they're limited pretty much to duress, mistake of fact, and former jeopardy. Literally you're kind of fucked. Okay. Like you don't really have a defense. The, the U.S. military doesn't give a flying fuck why you bounced. Uh, they just care that you fucking bounced. The punishments, okay. 
obviously vary based on the context of like what the AWOL desertion-ness was, okay? Like if you were actually on watch, like if you were supposed to be on watch at that time and you bounce, like that's more serious than like just not showing up for your shift, right? You understand. It's easy. The list of punishments that you can receive for being AWOL, okay? Remember, AWOL is the temporary bitch, okay? The temporary hoe. The one where you're like 15 minutes, maybe a little, little late, um, but, you, but you eventually show up. Yeah. Or AWOL could be like you left for two weeks to go to Bora Bora with your girlfriend instead of reporting for duty. Those are both AWOL, okay? Because you do intend to come back. But when you come back, you, you have some charges, okay? You have some punishments. I'm going to list off just some of these punishments. And obviously, they vary. Okay, based on the severity of the AWOLness, failure to report or to depart from the duty location, such as arriving late to work, leaving early or not showing up for an appointment, could subject you to military confinement for a month, <laughs> reduction to the lowest enlisted grade, forfeiture of two-thirds monthly pay for one month. If the individual is on watch or guard duty and then abandons the post without authorization and with the intention to leave the post, you are discharged for bad conduct and forfeiture of all wages and allowances, reduction of the lowest enlisted grade enlisted, imprisonment for up to six months. If the individual is absent from the unit organization or a different duty location longer than 30 consecutive days, discharged dishonorably with forfeiture of all compensation or allowances, reduction to lowest enlisted grade, and a period of one-year confinement. Now, mind you, right? You're probably thinking, oh, that's like over 30 days. Wouldn't it be desertion? If they intended to come back, I think there's an asterisk where they're where basically the cleaning officer can pull an call an audible and say, I'm going to charge them to be AWOL instead of dessert. Also, if the individual is AWOL with the intention to stay clear of any field exercise or maneuver, misconduct, discharge, you get the loss of all allowances and payments, reduction to the lowest enlisted grade, and prison for six months. Enjoy that. Okay. So basically, there is a goddamn heavy incentive to fucking state your gun post to keep it cute and keep it on mute. If the individual deserted, but then voluntarily returned under military control, you get a dishonorable discharge, loss of all allowances and payments and reduction to the lowest enlisted grade and three years in confinement. So three years in prison. Even if you come back and you're like, JK. Okay. If the individual deserted with the intention to avoid dangerous duty or to avoid important service, aka the highest level of desertion, aka yes, Douglas, for sure, the punishment is dishonorable discharge, forfeiture of all payer allowances, reduction to the lowest enlisted grade, and confinement prison for five years. If the individual deserts in time of war, the member could be sentenced to death or a different penalty, such as life imprisonment, that a court martial might decide. Stay at your pose. <laughs> Stay in line. <laughs> Bring a snack. I am now going to be reading from the U.S. Air Force Court of Criminal Appeals case, United States versus Airman Basic James D. Pugh. This opinion was entered October 10th, 1995. Let's do the math. Three years after he was arrested, right? Initially arrested in 1992 from his San Diego doorstep. What happened? What happened? And what was he appealing? Was it just his initial um, desertion, larceny, bigamy situation? Oh, no. Oh, no, baby, no. Let's, let's read the facts. Airman Basic, then Staff Sergeant James D. Pugh, faked his death and deserted on May 12, 1987, while serving as an instructor in the Air Force's pararescue training unit at Kirtland Air Force Base, New Mexico. The Air Force changed Pugh's status to deceased on May 21, 1987. 
He left behind a wife and two small sons and went to San Diego, California, where he changed his name and bigamously, which is a word, married Monica, eventually fathering two more sons. Bigamously. (laughs) In June 1992, Monica, having learned of Doug's past, contacted his family. He was arrested and pled guilty to desertion and bigamy in a general court-martial on November 9th, 1992. His approved sentence was a bad conduct discharge, confinement for 18 months, forfeiture of all pay and allowances, and reduction to E1. That feels like fucking getting off easy, don't you think? Considering like all the fucking shit that I just told you about, like the five-year type B and the three-year type B in terms of like a prison sentence, and he got 18 months and like losing his pay and like bad conduct, like, no, that was not good. And demote, you know, demoted, like forfeiture pay loss, like. 18 months does not sound that bad, especially when you had, literally you were kicking it for five years. That's wild to me. And and that just goes to show that like, sorry, but uh, it's not what you know, it's who you know. And his homies loved his ass. And I think that was helpful in this sense because uh, his commanding officer was the one who was like running the shit, absolutely running the shit. So Pew was sentenced in November of 1992 and start serving his sentence immediately at March Air Force Base, which is about 50 miles east of Los Angeles, all right, without a hitch. But what he doesn't realize, but what I definitely could have guessed, is is there's there's more to his second wife, Monica. Um, there's, there's more under her belt, if you will, more in her arsenal. Monica learned that our boy Doug was sleeping with the neighbor, okay, the neighbor woman, I can only imagine what she looks like. It's giving Desperate Housewives. Not only sleeping with her while uh, him and Monica were married, but also got her pregnant with a baby girl. And she thought, as any normal woman would, that divorce is not enough, right? Divorce would be too easy on him, for sure. She decides that looking into his background, finding his old family that thinks he's dead, telling them he's alive, and then calling the Air Force and reporting him as a deserter might just be it right? That might be enough, okay, to to tell him to go fuck himself. She she thought that that might be enough, but uh, apparently it wasn't. Apparently it didn't scratch the itch that she really needed. Scratched, okay? Um, besmirching his name and hearing that 18-month sentence seems a little light, okay? Seems a little light, light diet soda. After the trial, trial, the court-martial, okay, where he was like, I'm guilty, oops, and all of his buddies got to testify about how what a, about what a dog he was, right, about how he was just a ladies' man. Um, she called up the Air Force investigators again and said, hey, um, you want to know something crazy that I just remembered just now? He probably robbed a bank. And they were like, pardon me. And she said, oh, yeah, did I forget to tell you? Okay. Um, I think that very recently after we got married um, in like 1988, one year after uh, he went missing, he took some time off of work in San Diego, flew to Corpus Christi, Texas, and robbed a bank, and then came home. And I don't think they ever solved that crime. Just like throwing that out there. No worries if not. And then she hit click. She heard 18 months and said, let me dial a fucking phone number right now. Absolutely fucking not. She had that in her back pocket. And honestly, that was kind of cunty for her to, she like was like, let me hear the sentence. Nope. 
That's not that's not going to be enough at fucking all. Uh, these investigators who thought they were done with this, thought their hands were clean, realized that no, they are not. They now have to fly to bumfuck Corpus Christi, Texas, all right, and figure this shit out. And hopefully she's wrong. Well, she wasn't, okay, because women never are. Investigators would find out that in August 1988, he took, Pew, took time off from his real estate job and traveled to Texas where he dressed in ninja warrior garb and robbed the Coastal Bend National Bank in Corpus Christi. Ninja warrior garb is in not my creative, creative artiste, creative decision, creative verbiage. That is what they said. This is a year after he went missing. He went missing in May of 1987. And in August 1988, he flew. He just flew woo, to, to Texas, took some PTO to dress up as a ninja and rob a bank. And before you ask, yes, a movie has been made about this man. But it was more in like a drama type film. It was a film that came out like 90s. Okay. I don't even think anyone really saw it. Maybe they did. Who knows? But it's called like The Lies He Told. The Lies He Told. Something like that. It was a super dramatic fucking Pearl Harbor type vibe. You know what I mean? Like that movie, not the literal event. Like that movie, right? It was supposed to be, they wanted it to be dramatic. Okay? Like Oscar nom type beat. I think you need to hit this with another angle. You need to hit it with the SNL like jackass angle. You have to go funny because this shit cannot, that, you really dressed a dead serious actor up in ninja warrior garb after just being in a beachside San Diego and being like, oh yeah, let me just go over here and rob this fucking bank. Like it's not, and also like there were no, there were no issues. Like, yeah, like they were getting their business, their like renovation, whatever business up and running. But like she had daddy's money, my guy. Like your your new wife had daddy's money. Your your new wife, okay, Monica in Chula Vista, her dad was a doctor and she was going to be a lawyer. Like you do not need to be doing all that. Like, why are you flying to Corpus Christi? Of all places, like, why Corpus Christi? What is your beef with Corpus Christi? You're not from there. He never lived there. Like, there's no, like, I have no fucking idea what was going on. And that's why it needed to be the rom-com angle. Like, that movie needed to not be dramatic. I haven't seen the movie. I have no interest. Uh, if you want to find it, go find it. Uh, let me know how it is. Specifically, witnesses said that the bank robber was dressed in military fatigues and a camouflaged poncho liner. His face and arms covered with camouflage paint and displayed what is to believe to have been a smoke grenade. So it's literally armed fucking robbery. Texas authorities said Pew in 1988 escaped toward the nearby Nueces River and disappeared in the surrounding brush country despite a two and a half hour search by law enforcement officials who were assisted by a Coast Guard helicopter. And they never found him. Like the unsolved robbery in Corpus Christi, the literal like, like the definition of fucking catching a stray, right? Corpus Christi's like this. This fucking bank is like, my guy, like you couldn't have robbed a bank in SD. Like why is that our fucking problem? Yeah, never solved. Never fucking solved. Uh, but guess, guess who would solve it? Uh, a girl with a fucking vendetta. A woman with a fucking pissed off dating history, okay? She said, doo -doo 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 -doo, boop, yep, my name is Monica. He did that shit, okay? And so indeed, all right, 
They start investigating this, okay? They're investigating this. They're flying to Corpus Christi. Our boy, Douglas Pugh, sitting at March Air Force Base serving his sentence, he finds out that they're investigating him for this side piece robbery situation, okay? Because yes, as as you just know, as I just told you, the military can do that, okay? You're under their jurisdiction. They can they can look at all the crimes that you've been committing around the world. He's going global, Mr. Worldwide. Doug, our boy Douglas, was like, ooh, uh, I, the 18-monther like felt like a vibe. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like r- armed robbery. Armed robbery where the Coast Guard and a helicopter had to come out. I feel like all of my, um, you know, popular kid cards are running out. I don't think they're going to fuck with that. I don't think they're going to take it easy on me. This is an article from June 2nd, 1993. This is the headline. Bigamist, comma, deserter, escapes from Air Force Brig. Yup. James Douglas Pugh, the Air Force deserter who led a secret life here for five years after faking his death, has befuddled the military again by escaping from the brig, officials at March Air Force Base discovered on Tuesday. Quote, we're still trying to figure it out. He was in confinement, said Master Sergeant Lionel Harvey, spokesman for the base in Riverside, where Pew was serving an 18-month sentence and awaiting a court-martial on new charges, which included armed robbery. Pew, 33, a former member of an elite search and rescue unit and an expert in escape and evasion, clearly... Look at this motherfucker's stats, okay? I want his baseball card for escapees. He escaped a life? Air Force duty as an airman, okay? Those motherfuckers couldn't find his ass. Like, he 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 staged a bike accident and got away with it, bounced to San Diego, and then robbed, robbed a bank in Corpus Christi, just no reason, escaped a Coast Guard helicopter in terrain that was unfamiliar to him. He didn't know it. He wasn't from there. He had never been there. Like, what in the fuck? And now he's escaped from the, the brig, the B-R-I-G brig. Like, we're in the fucking do-do-do-do-do, like Pirates of the Caribbean type shit. Another article I'm going to read from, too, calls it the stockade, and he's escaping from this shit. Like, what? Stockade. Shut the fuck up. That is fucking crazy. Hugh, a former member of an elite search and rescue unit and an expert in escape and evasion had repeatedly warned Air Force authorities that he could escape from the base brig. He literally was like, get your, get your mans, like get your girl, like get your fucking locking key because I can, yo, by the way, I can break out of this shit any day, any day I want. And they were like, shut the fuck up, Doug. Stop it. He's so silly. Take him at his fucking word. Oh, my God. Pew told his jailers that the cell he occupied could not hold him, saying, quote, when I want to leave, I'll just walk out. Apparently, that is exactly what he did. Sometime between Monday night and early Tuesday morning, June 1993. I, as much as I hate this motherfucker, that goes kind of hard. Hey, when I want to leave, I'll just walk out. By the way, so... Do without what you will. And they did nothing. Master Sergeant Lionel Harvey, the base spokesman, said prisoners are required to sleep in a locked wire cage that is partitioned. Pew was sharing a partitioned area with three other prisoners on the night of his escape. In order to leave the cage, Pew had to walk through a barred door and then leave the room through another locked door. 
Harvey said there were two security officers on duty the night Pew escaped. He said that Pew is believed to be the very first prisoner to escape from the facility. Sick as hell. He must have been a really good para. I Look, if I'm ever trapped in the montañas in the mountains in a fucking, you know, glacier, I'm calling this motherfucker. I don't care where he is. I don't care if he's in Britain. Let him out. Unlock his, unlock his door. Open his purse because I want his ass to come get me because damn, that's smooth. The only information I got is that he escaped sometime between 11 p.m. Monday and 4.30 a.m. Tuesday, said Paul Nestor, Pooh's civilian, wow, Pew's civilian attorney in Orange County. As far as I know, there was no evidence of a forceful escape. He just disappeared. Okay, so he didn't like you might be thinking like, oh, like how like he was literally in confinement. 24 hour guards around the clock. Locking keys. And he escaped the brig, the stockade out of a military base without ever injuring anyone, fighting anyone. Like he didn't like kill somebody and get out like a guard, nothing. This motherfucker's Houdini. The March Air Force Base's spokesman said investigators had no clues as to how Pew managed his la- latest escape. He said Pew, formerly a staff sergeant, is not considered dangerous. Of course, get a pass. In addition to the bank robbery charge, Pew was awaiting court-martial on charges of fraudulently a- obtaining a passport in 1987 when he was supposedly dead and wearing an unauthorized military proficiency badge. Because remember what I said, that's illegal, that's a crime. Wearing a different badge, that's a crime. Several former military colleagues testified at, n- at the first court-martial, okay, just, what, six, seven months prior, that Pew was considered a living legend in the Air Force. Pew and other members of his old Air Force unit talked about his daring rescues in Iceland, the North Sea, and other parts of the world. Master Sergeant William Burton described him as a hardworking overachiever and said that Pew's exploits are still the standard by which Air Force pararescuers are judged. At the time that this article was written, not only did he escape, he had not been found. He walked out of the brig of the stockade and was not found. And I know what you're probably thinking, too. He's a popular guy. He probably had help. They never found out or discovered, at least, right? We know nothing. We're the public. When it comes to the military, like I said, shit happens behind closed doors. We know nothing. Um, The Air Force, okay, egg on their fucking face, never said that they found out anyone helped him. Okay, maybe, like, unlocked the door. Maybe, like, got a snack while he was, like, getting out, whatever. They never confirmed that. Obviously, there are theories there is not even anyone in the running like who worked there who they're like thinking that's what happened but like logically okay unless everyone is incompetent as fuck him just walking out without without seeing anyone injuring anyone anything it, it's giving assistance but who knows he's also a living legend he right maybe i'm just not giving him enough credit like he shawshank redemption that shit like he crawled through the fucking tunnel so pew escapes on monday Okay, Monday night, like between like 11 p.m. and 4.30 a.m., 10.30 p.m., 4.30 a.m. Okay, so like Monday, Tuesday, type beat, okay? Um, yeah, officials, after several hours of not finding him, officials meaning the Air Force, the United States Air Force, not some like podunk ass, like county fucking police department type beat, literally the U.S. Air Force, the military couldn't find him still, okay? <laughs> they can't find him. So they call Monica, okay, his second wife, and go, hey, he escaped. Just like letting you know. We don't think he's dangerous. Like he hasn't really like done anything like violent before except for like beat his own kids. But like you should be fine. But like just letting you know. 
if you see him, let us know. And she was like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, what the fuck? Okay. That literally they told her that on Tuesday. By Wednesday, they still hadn't found him. So they they ramped up manhunt manhunt efforts like imagine like egg on your fucking face like imagine how embarrassing that is like you are the fucking air force you're the air force and this motherfucker left your stockade how long is he gone okay you're probably thinking a few days maybe a few more hours douglas Pugh escaped june 1st 1993 and turned himself in at miramar naval air station in california on june 16th 1993 so he was gone for 15 days <laughs> two Full weeks. Douglas Pugh escaped. Our pararescuer legend, living legend in the Air Force, escaped from a military stockade and was not found for two weeks. Not only was he not found, never found really at all, um, he turned himself in. Like, nobody found him. Like, there was no, like, wow, like, thank you so much to, like, our soldiers for getting him back. No, he pulled up and said, hey, Y'all are trash. <laughs> you couldn't find my ass. Saying that he had spent the time camping out in the mountains. Slay. He ate that. Like, I'm sorry. That's fucking funny. That's hella funny. He literally walked up and said, hey, okay, I'm ready now. I just wanted to like get a taste of fresh air real quick before I'm charged with robbery. After he turned himself in, Pew was then convicted in January of 1994. Pew faces a total, faced at least at that time, faced a total of 16 and a half years in prison after being convicted on five of six counts stemming from the escape and his five-year double life, including the 1988 robbery of a bank in Corpus Christi, Texas. Eight military officers on the jury convicted Pew of the most serious charges of robbery and escape from confinement, according to base spokesman Jerry Sonnenberg. Because again, regular bitches, civilians, civvies aren't allowed in. Like, we just hear word of mouth, like, what happened? We're like, hey, what happened? And they're like, we'll tell you, okay? So... He's convicted, yay, of like all those fucking things. Um, Let's go back to the fucking appellate opinion, all right? He's a convicted January of 1994, and then this appeal was decided October of 95. In January 1994, the appellant, Doug, was found guilty by a second general court martial sitting with members of bank robbery of $40,000, okay? So that's what he got out of that Corpus Christi bank, 40 grand, which back then, holy shit, he's really successful. Honestly, he's like a pretty lucky guy. Like, he should really have bought a lottery, a lottery ticket. I mean, I guess he did. He robbed a bank and he got away. I don't know, man. This guy's fucking crazy lucky. Crazy lucky. The only thing that he's not good about is keeping his dick dry. But another story. Willfully making a false statement on a passport application in August 1987. Escape from confinement. Absence, absence without leave. A wall and wrongful appropriation of a battle dress uniform jacket he wore during the escape. Imagine going to jail or like having like, you know, a year added onto your sentence because you wore a fucking coat wrong. His approved sentence was ultimately a bad conduct discharge, confinement for six years, forfeiture of all pay and allowances, and a fine of $42,000 with further confinement of up to two additional years if the fine is not paid. So our homeboy appealed it. Okay. He, of course, appealed it and said, no, um, the court does not have jurisdiction. He claimed that um, the Air Force personnel, which determined he had died after he faked his death, was equivalent to a fraudulent discharge. 
He concludes that a court martial had no jurisdiction to try him for the bank robbery and fraudulent passport application offenses, both of which occurred after his fake death and before he was apprehended by the Air Force in 1992. Um, creative arg, creative argument, the court was not persuaded. The court said, in our view, the action of the Air Force in declaring a missing person dead is not the equivalent of a discharge of that person. A discharge is an affirmative action taken by a military service to separate a person. In the case of a fraudulent discharge, the military service takes an affirmative action to separate the individual based on a misrepresentation by that person. In the case of a faked death, on the other hand, the military takes no action to affect separation, right? If you die, you're all, you're going to die an airman, like an active airman, like that they don't go, oop, by the way, chair on top, like go fuck yourself. Instead, it creates documents to officially recognize a fact which occurred outside of its control, the death of the military member. Of course, in this case, Airman Pugh's death has no fact at all, since Airman Pugh was very much alive. Since we conclude that Airman Pugh's faked death did not serve to, quote, discharge him from the Air Force, he has no basis to argue that the Air Force lacked jurisdiction to try him for offenses which occurred after that faked death. The Air Force properly subjected Airman Pugh to court-martial jurisdiction as a member of, of a regular component of the armed forces. Pretty tough, pretty tough, pretty tough. In addition to other arguments, they affirmed his conviction, okay? They affirmed. Doug Pugh, obviously, if you can do math, um, is out and has been out for several decades. He served his fucking time wrote a book about his life, his love, his pursuit of happiness, his exploits. Um, obviously, the movie was made uh, that b- says it's, like, based on this story. Um, whatever. <laughs> I'm not really 100% sure what he's doing now. I think he probably motivationally speaks. Um, but given the gravity... The gravity of the deception here and the like bouncing out on every single child that you father that you had and letting allowing your loved ones, even if you hate your even if your family fucking sucks, right? Even if he was abused as a child, like allowing your friends, like your your airmen, your loved ones, that type of bond, allowing them to believe that you were dead, allowing them to grieve you for that long where you're just in the beach while they're where you literally could wa- could have watched your memorial on TV, like they had a memorial for you. They were looking for your body. Like my rebuttal for this week's episode is that look, once a scrub, always a scrub. Stop cheating on your woman, especially if you are living a life of crime and deception, not because there's a moral code behind it, but because women will not let it go. Will not let that slide. Will not let it fly. Um, pay your rent and stay in your goddamn place. And do not, for whatever fucking reason, go AWOL. Stay at your post. (laughs) Keep it cute. And keep it on mute. And keep it still. And make sure your boss knows where you are. And make sure you arrive on time. And make sure your alarm goes off to wake you up, to start your shift. This has been the story of the legend, the Air Force legend of Douglas Pugh. Love you so much. Be safe. Go watch on YouTube. Review, comment, like. 
if you want. If not, I'll still be here talking into a mic. I love you guys. See you next time. Kisses.